1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 15. I'm actually going to start in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Verse 10. And according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with, God, with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will close it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this uh, morning to be together, to gather together and worship. Lord, we pray for the many, Lord, that are in the hospital with COVID. Lord, as our nation, as our world is ravaged, continuing by this virus, Lord. I know that some in our church are at home because of contract tracing and quarantining, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage them while they're away for a short amount of time. We pray for others who are sick right now, Lord, as, as sickness has gone around uh, throughout our city. We pray, Lord, for them as well as they are disconnected from us this morning. I pray that you would encourage them as they watch online, as they listen online or listen this week on the app. We pray that you would encourage them through your word, that you would encourage them while they're even listening from afar, that you would encourage them through your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, for those who are traveling, for those who are on vacation. We pray for the Hudsons who are traveling on, on vacation. We pray, Lord, that they would have rest and that they would be restored and renewed. And pray, Lord, that you would bring them back to us safely. We pray for our church. We pray for Redeemer, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that does focus on spiritual maturity, that we would encourage the people who attend here as a community of believers to grow in the likeness of Christ. And as our friends from First Southern are with us, we pray for First Southern as well. We pray for the same thing, Lord, that the gospel would be centered at First Southern, that no other thing would distract them, but that they would be focused on the gospel. And Lord, that you would use that church to minister to the city and to the people around them. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. And we pray forward for our brothers and sisters in Nepal. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage them this morning. Lord, as you have chosen to to use this church to, to minister and to provide and to pray for uh, the churches of Nepal. Lord, of all the, all the nations in the world, you chose to send us to Nepal. And Lord, we praise you for that and all the blessings we've received from that partnership. And may you continue, Lord, to use the believers there and the churches there to make your name known. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I should have been getting my notes out, but I didn't, so bear with me for a second. Um, the, um, if, if this is your first time uh, to Redeemer, or you've been here a little bit, but you haven't downloaded the app, one of the things that you can access on the app on a Sunday morning is we have a digital hymnal. And you're like, what is a digital hymnal? It's, it's a fancy term for weekly bulletin. Uh, we don't print them out. We don't give them to you because that's expensive, and we don't have a lot of money. So we just do a digitalized version. Um, and so it's easy for you because you can access it on your phone. It's okay here at this church to use your phone while we worship. Just don't go on Facebook uh, and uh, don't get on Instagram. 
But uh, if you want to use that hymnal, and on that hymnal, you'll notice there's a sermon notes link. Click on that link, and you can actually follow along to uh, the notes. Uh, from the, Those things that you'll see on the screen, you actually can see on that, that note, that sermon note. So I would encourage you to, to look at that. So the, the title of this sermon is Location, Location, Location. The setting for spiritual maturity. The setting for spiritual maturity. And uh, I want to start off, there's a, a book. I, I want to recommend this book. We, uh, and I don't think we really have uh, kind of talked about this all that much, and that's uh, it's our mistake, but it's not Jacob Candler's mistake at all. He has provided many, many books for our library, and uh, we have a kind of, we started a church library uh, just a few months ago, and we have many books. If you go into the, what we call the parlor room, which is this office room over here with the conference table, and the armor, the suit of armor is in there as well, we have a large selection of books that you can borrow. There's a nice little clipboard right there, fancy, uh, that you just write your name, and, and basically when you turn it back in, just write it when you turned it back in. But uh, w- uh, one of the books that we should probably add, I think we were selling at one point, was What's Best Next? And this book uh, was written by Matt Pierman, and is a, it's a book on productivity according to the gospel. It seems like an interesting terminology. Why would anyone write a book, a Christian book, on productivity? That seems very business-oriented, but there is a, an importance to understanding productivity. Why? Because time is finite, right? We do not have an unlimited amount of time. We do not have an amount of time on this earth to just an abundance of time and days that we have a certain amount of time and days. And obviously we are ignorant of that amount, but God knows. And all that we do know is because the product of the fall, because of sin, we are going to die. That life will come to an end for us. And so we have a certain amount of time. And so it requires a certain spiritual maturity to use that time wisely, to do what is best over what is good. There's a lot of things that are good in this world. There's a lot of things that you can do with your time that are good. However, what is actually the best thing to do with your time? Here's a, here's a quote from the book. Our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Let me read that again. Our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be of failure, Really? Shouldn't be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And I think there's an importance to this. What is actually important for you, but also what is important for a church? Is your involvement in the church, is it about networking so that you can get a better job or so you can make more friends or so that you can get married? Those are all good things. But should that be the, the, the most important thing about being involved in a church? Should your, uh, should your involvement in the church be about um, uplifting comedy? I, I go to church once a week because the pastor is really funny and he makes me feel good. Is that an important reason or important matter to be involved in the church? Good lift, uplifting music? That's your all good things. Social justice, moralism. But are these the best things? Are these the things that we should put before us as our vision and what we should be pursuing when we decide to be involved in a church? Or should the church make those the most valuable things that they pursue? The way that Matt Perry kind of outlines his books, he calls this DARE, D-A-R-E, and it's kind of an abbreviation uh, for uh, four different words and ideas. 
Number one is define. What is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? For, uh, for, for a Christian or for a believer, the most important thing in your life should be Christ Jesus. Therefore, that what you do with your time should be defined by that important thing. The other thing, the A, is architect, that you have been given by God the ability to design how you use your time. He has given you that freedom to design how you should use your time. The, the R is reduce. What is actually not the best use of your time? And being able to reduce the things that are good but are not the best things. They don't, actually pers- they don't help you pursue what is actually how you should define your life. And the last one is in executing. Executing, using your time, balancing your time to pursue what actually matters. So you have to first know what's the most important thing so you can put it first. If you don't know what's most important in your life, then how are you going to be able to put it first? That's really important. So let me give you a, a, a main idea. This has kind of been our main idea for our series, is that spiritual maturity is the vision of our discipleship process, which is developed through learning, fellowship, and going. So today we're going to talk about fellowship. And let me give you kind of the main idea for this particular sermon on fellowship. Quality fellowship that contributes to spiritual maturity is centered in Christ, which is manifested as gospel fellowship. Gospel fellowship. Spiritual maturity takes place in Christ-centered church fellowship. Spiritual maturity takes place in Christ-centered church fellowship. So here's the first kind of sub-point, point A. And if you're following along on your notes, you'll notice it's the, it comes after A. The church is God's building. The church is God's building. Looking at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we, we see that Paul has been talking to the church in Corinth about some strife and jealousy and some division. Basically saying, well, I support Apollos, or I support Paul, or I support someone else. As, as if the church is defined by the one who started the church, the, the, the church planter, or the pastor, that that's what defines the church. And so they're, they're basically saying, well, we like Apollo better than Paul, or we like Paul better than Paul, or we like some other pastor over those two. And Paul calls them out on that. And Paul says, it's not Paul, it's not me or Apollos or someone else that gives the growth. God gives the growth. We are just God's fellow workers. It's God's field, not our field. We did not plant it. We did not help it grow. God did. And I think it's important because we as Christians, this is very common, we tend to fall into these, these categories of saying, well, well, we support Calvin, so we're kind of part of the Calvin church, the Calvinist church. Or we support Luther, so we're part of the Lutheran church. Or we're part of like John Piper's field, right? We like John Piper, so he kind of defines what church that we involved in. But it's God's church. It's God's field. And he even says here in verse 9, it's God's Building. So he changes from talking about watering and planting, and then he gets into talking about buildings and using architecture. It's God's building. He is the owner of his church. You, as a body of believers, belong sl- solely to him. Uh, I like Shark Tank. I enjoy watching this show and enjoy the kind of uh, the, the presentation 
of the entrepreneurial idea. Hey, we, I have this idea, and I started this idea, and now I need people to invest in my idea. And that's what kind of Shark Tank. If you've ever watched the show, it's really fascinating, especially if you like business. And so they'll have these four or five different business experts, like Mark Cuban and a few others, and, they'll, and they'll, they give the opportunity to these investors to invest in these certain companies. And what is it usually how the show is presented? They, he present, the person presents their idea, presents their facts of their business, how their business is going, and then basically asks the, the sharks to invest in their company by giving a certain amount of money for a certain amount of equity in the company, right? So you say, all right, if you give me $500,000, I'll give you 10% of my company. So therefore, all the profits that we make, you will receive 10% of that. Well, in the church, there is no shared equity. There, there is an idea that some great pastor or great people have 10% of the equity. No, no, God is the complete and sole owner of the church. He does not share equity. We are not responsible, nor should we be rewarded as if we somehow have provided that extra 10% or that extra 5% to God's church. We are servants of God. God is in charge of his church, and no, no one has an equity share as if God owes the pastor, deacons, committee, or whomever any equity or any profit. God receives all the glory and all the praise and all the rewards from the growth of his church. We are servants of God. And if you've been watching, listening to the podcast by Christianity Today, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the, the church that Mark Driscoll led in uh, Seattle, Washington, that failed miserably after so much growth, you get this kind of similar theme throughout the story, is that what ended up happening was is that Mark Driscoll basically convinced himself that it was by his work that the church rose. And so that's why he made some of the decisions that he's made. As if he somehow, a, 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 as, as he deserves a certain part of the equity of God's church. Which presented him as a rival to God's ownership. God is the owner and he causes the growth, not a particular pastor, a particular planter, a particular leader in the church. It is by God is the owner, he causes the growth, not anyone else. And Paul says that I, he laid a foundation according to God's grace. That Paul, yes, he planted this church. He planted the church in Corinth. That as an expert builder, he laid the foundation of this church community on Christ and him crucified. What does he say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says in verse 3, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what he's saying. As an expert builder, the wisdom that I use to plant this church can be basically defined as I preach Christ and him crucified alone. That's the foundation that he's laid, not according to wise tactics of the world. He's basically telling the church in Corinth is that don't fall into this understanding that wisdom of man is how the church is started. No, it is by God alone. It's through Christ and him crucified. And Paul says, that's the foundation that I laid, Christ and him crucified. I was talking to someone uh, recently about college ministry, and we were laughing because of all the different tactics to get college students involved in ministry in the church. And so one of the tactics is just giving out AirPods, right? And we were joking, like, do you have the method of giving out AirPods to grow the, 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 the college ministry, right? This right here, even if it worked, and if you want to define that as we got more people involved, what you used was the wisdom of the world. If you just give things away to people at f for free— 
then people will get involved. Paul's not saying, I didn't plant the church by giving out AirPods. I planted by simply preaching Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's the foundation by which I laid and nothing else. And he even says here in, ver- in chapter 3 and kind of continuing in this kind of long verse in verse 10 that someone else is building upon the foundation that I laid. And what he's saying is, is that, and it even, he even warns them in the next kind of phrase there to take care to be, and he warns them to take care how, he build, how you build upon it. And, and what he starts off, even before he gets to this passage and this, and this letter to this church, is that these people, this, these believers were people of the flesh as infants in Christ. They behaved in a human way, not in a spiritual way. And he even says that you were not, you're, not, you're not doing things in a spiritual way as ones who have the Spirit. Instead, you're acting like people who are not of the Spirit. You're acting in ways as if you're relying on things of the world and you're not relying on God. He's saying, don't be impressed by human wisdom, but by the wisdom of God. And he even he re, he says here in this, this long passage that is, that is, that is great, starting in, in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the, of the cross is folly on those who are perishing, but to, the, to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it is pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the fullness of, full, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The foolish, the wisdom of man is not relevant. It is not productive. It is not the way to add to the foundation that is laid by Paul. Some are building onto the foundation laid by Paul that is based on the wisdom of the world. And Paul is saying that is not how I did not lay a foundation based off the wisdom of the world, not based off the wisdom of man. I built a foundation based off what the world thinks is folly, which is Christ crucified. That's the foundation by which I laid. And that's what you, as, as Christians of leaders in the church, as you lay things on this foundation, as you build what I have already laid, take care how you build upon it. Take care. This is a warning to leaders in the church, members of the church. By what wisdom are you building upon the foundation of the church? He says after our passage in 16 and 17 of chapter 3, Do you not know that as God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him? For God's temple is holy and you are that 
temple, the temple of the Lord. You are a temple of the Lord. The church is the temple of the Lord. And if you lay on that foundation of Christ crucified with things of the world, you are destroying God's temple. And what happens to those who destroy God's temple? You are judged. This is a sharp warning on how we build upon the foundation laid by Paul that is Christ Jesus and him crucified. Point B, Christ Jesus and him crucified is the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. For no one can build a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, he says here in verse verse 11. For no one can build a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is the foundation. That's why Paul says, the foundation by which I laid is what? Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's the foundation. And the foundation is what? You can say it in one word, it's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to the world, that Christ Jesus was sent in the world to die for the sins of man and to redeem and reconcile man to God, is the gospel, and that is the foundation of the church. Christ and him crucified. It's the pure gospel. And Paul says in chapter 3 that I have not been able to give you that. You're not ready for that. Because why? Because you are distracted by the wisdom of the world. And you're walking according to the flesh. This has led some to build upon the foundation of Christ and the church community in ways that are according to the flesh and not the spirit, which has led to what? Strife and jealousy and division, which makes sense. Why? Because the wisdom of the world is not relevant and not productive for the church of God. So what happens when we rely on that wisdom? It leads to strife. It leads to jealousy, and it leads to division, which is exactly what Paul is talking to, talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3, to the church in Corinth. And I think that one of the problems in the church, the church season right now is that I think there's a lot of nonsense just going on. I'm just going to be frank. It's nonsense. The whole, like, masks and vaccines and all that, all that junk, and I don't really care which side you're on. It's just a lot of nonsense that that's what the focus has been from the pulpit. It's just nonsense, really. It's nonsense. And basically what's happened is, is the gospel has been pushed out. And what has happened when the gospel is pushed out? Strife, jealousy, division. Duh. We're relying on the wisdom of the world. We're trying to, to fix everything with the wisdom of the world, and we're not just relying on the gospel, the pure gospel acting like little children. And that's what Paul basically calls the church of Corinth. You're little children. You're, you, I can't give you solid food because you can only take milk. You're not ready for the gospel. Even though you believe the gospel, but now I can't give it to you because all you want to focus on is the wisdom of the world. We're unpre- they're unprepared for the pure gospel that saved our souls and gives us power in this current age. You want power in this life? You want power in the complexities of our world? The gospel is the power that you need, not the wisdom of the world. The reason why Christians and churches seem powerless is because there's no gospel there. Therefore, our fellowship must be Christ-centered. It can't be just simply social. When it's simply social and the gospel is not there, our fellowship is not powerful, and therefore it's not helpful. 
to spiritual maturity. Here's point C. Is your church being built with the gospel or worldly wisdom fellowship? Is your church being built with gospel fellowship or worldly wisdom fellowship? He even says here in verse 13, now if any, in verse 12, if anyone, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifested. Now if anyone builds, I think this is an important thing, and I want to focus on this just for a second, is that you realize if you're a Christian in this room, we are not a Catholic church. We do not believe that the only people that can build on the foundation of Christ Jesus is priests, bishops, archbishop, cardinals, and the Pope. We believe in 1 Peter chapter 2 that all believers have been indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if whatever your title is. You get the same spirit that the lady does. There's no division. The church and all the members of the church are keys have been given the keys to the kingdom. There's authority and responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ. So just kind of dwell on that for a second. That you have been given the Holy Spirit by God, and therefore you have authority and responsibility as a Christian. Not only those who are priests or pastors or whatever those titles you think give you, that does not give you any equal authority or power. All Christians are dwelt with the same Holy Spirit. So when we think about how we build, if anyone, if anyone builds, think of the quality of that material. Now, Paul kind of gives these six different materials. Now, it would be wrong of you to then go, all right, what is the gold, and what is the silver, and what is the precious stone, and what's the wood, and the handshaw? I think that would be, Paul does not give us uh, any kind of like uh, ways to understand exactly what these materials are referring to, certain ministries or these type of things. But what we need to understand is what material will endure determines the quality or the value. So the reason why he mentions gold, silver, and precious stones, because as he mentions here, as, it's, as fire is, is, is breathed on it or, or poured upon it, will it last? Will it survive? Well, wood and, and hay and straw get burnt up by fire. But metals and gold and silver is purified. It doesn't go away. So he says that what will endure determines the quality or value of what is added to the foundation of the church community. Each one's work will become manifested. The day of judgment, the day will disclose how valuable your additions to the foundation were. And so it gives us this divine perspective that what we think may have value actually don't have value in the eyes of God. And we'll know what actually has value to God when it's manifested at the day of judgment. What actually matters to God will be revealed by fire. Even not only will it be revealed, but it will test the quality of a person's work. The true value will be revealed. So what Paul is saying, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the wisdom of the gospel has a quality that matters to God. And the wisdom of man does not have value to God. And this is the test. Let me, let me say, I'm a, I like sports. Me and Josh, I know Josh Strother, are big sports fans. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things you hear about in football and basketball, especially, what are the upsets? Who, who's going to upset the favorite? You know, uh, who's, who's that upset, right? Is, is, well, obviously, and we have our Murray State fans here. They look like they were going to upset Cincinnati, but then failed to do so, right? That was a surprise in the beginning of the game, but then ended up being 
basically what we thought. Four more quarters. Uh, there's always more to the game, yeah. Uh, but there was, a, there was an upset yesterday in football. Jacksonville State beat Florida State. That was an upset. It was a surprise. People did not expect that outcome. I think, put that in perspective with this passage, we, there's a lot of people who think what matters to God actually will be surprised what actually matters to God. They'll think that crowd size and movements and responses and great responses, that that is what God matters to God. And then we'll find out at the end when things are manifested, when things are tested, that that was not what God values. And there will be a surprise to what God actually cares about. What God cares about is what is grounded firmly in the gospel of Christ. At the end that will be revealed as pure, lovely, and acceptable, and long-lasting are the things that are rooted in the gospel, firmly rooted in the gospel of Christ. He even says that not only will they be tested and seen as valuable, but those who build upon the foundation that Paul laid, that is Christ Jesus and him crucified, the things that, that we build upon that, those whose things that will last, that will survive, that God says matters, is given a reward. And again, we're not given exactly what that reward is. But we know here that the gold, silver, and precious stone is the gospel. When we rely on the gospel, when we build upon the foundation with the gospel, that it will last. And wood, hay, and straw is human wisdom. When we, think, when we go to human wisdom as the way that we go about things, we will find out that those things are valueless to God. The gospel will always survive. Human wisdom will be burned up and be defined as a waste. And I will say if, and this, that some people kind of, we have different views on what reward Paul is mentioning here. But I think one thing that we do know from Scripture is that re the reward for the believer is spiritual maturity. It's being conformed in the image of Christ. Just turning over for 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope and our joy and our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? It is not you, for you are our glory and joy. The, the boasting, the hope, and the joy that will be presented before God is that we, have, that we are like Christ, that we have been conformed in the image of Christ, that we are pure through the Holy Spirit, and that we've been sanctified and presented to our husband, to our Savior and Lord, as pure and blameless and mature. Spiritual maturity will never be lost or burnt up. It is never a waste of time. Work towards this outcome and to this end is never a waste. It's never a waste. Here's the last point. The glorious church is built with gospel fellowship. The glorious church is, church is built with gospel fellowship. What is fellowship? Fellowship is companionship and love among believers based on their unity in Christ. Based on their unity in Christ. Not by the color of their skin. Not because everyone in the church likes football or likes the same team. Or everyone likes the same style of music. Or everyone's from the same neighborhood. Their companionship and love is, among, is based on their unity in Christ. It's based on Christ and Him crucified. Unity in Christ is stronger than blood. The Christian fellowship is a supernatural fellowship. It's not defined by naturalistic explanations. 
It reveals the gospel. As we see in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, it manifests the wisdom of God that it may be known in the world. Christ-centered fellowship reveals the glory and beauty of God. Fellowship that is based on naturalistic explanations do not reveal that. It doesn't. When believers who all share the same likeness come together and they hang out, that doesn't necessarily manifest the glory of God. But when those who fellowship and love one another and unified only in Christ, and that's the only explanation, is that they love each other because of their love for Jesus, the gospel is revealed and the manifold wisdom of God is, is revealed. And Paul mentions this in Ephesians 3 in the context of Jews and Gentiles being unified in Christ. Let me end with this. Gospel fellowship. He calls, and Paul calls out the Galatian church in chapter 3 because they're being perfected by the flesh, not by the Spirit. Basically, they're building upon the foundation laid by Paul that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what they're adding to that foundation, what they're using, what materials they're using to build upon that foundation are things of the flesh and things not of the Spirit. We can maybe define that for us in our age and time. It's a churches that do a lot of activities, they're active, but they're not active in the gospel. And this is common in a lot of churches throughout the age, especially in America in the 20th century. Churches that are known more for potlucks, churches that are known more for uh, fundraisers, churches that are known more for what food they give out at the fall fest and not for their love of Christ and their unity in the gospel. They're active in a lot of activities, but they're not active in the gospel. Therefore, they do not have a gospel fellowship, and what materials they're laying upon that foundation are wood, straw, and hay, and at the end of the days, it will be burnt up because God does not care what you sell at the fall fest. He does not care how much money you make because what does that have to do with Jesus and the gospel? Fellowship must be directed not just to social activities, but to spiritually intentional fellowship. Fellowship rooted in Christ and Him crucified is gospel fellowship, and that is fellowship that will lead to spiritual maturity. Where we are encouraging, teaching, building up, confronting one another in the gospel of Christ, in the Word of God, in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what are some ways that we can do that? Let me try to be as practical as I can be. Number one is discipleship relationships. Relationships that read the God's word together, read spiritual uh, Christian literature together, pray together, discuss together, encourage one another in spiritual disciplines. I think one of the things that I think is really positive about Redeemer, and I don't want to say that, that, that and this is not by us, it's according to God's grace that is true. There's a lot of that going on, and I think that is good, and I think that is really encouraging. And I want to, I want to just encourage you, you to continue to do that. Continue to get together, men, women, whatever, and talk about God. Make God the center of your social interactions. That's a gospel fellowship. That is a discipleship relationship. You don't have to be in this, this situation where, well, they're older than me, and I'm younger than them, and they're a mentor to me, and I'm a mentee. It doesn't have to be that defined. It could be just like Christians getting together and talking about Christ. A church that has that has a gospel fellowship. That leads to what? Spiritual maturity. Second thing is hospitality. Let me, let me define what hospitality is because it's kind of misdefined, I think. 
And it's, I think it's a, what, what happens in churches is good. I, I love that members get together and they share food together in Jesus' home. That is good, that is proper, it's biblical, and it's encouraged. But it can't stop there. Right? That can't be the defined box. It, it's actually quite bigger than that. What hospitality is, by definition, is a lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. So when you're being hospitable, do not end your hospitality with people that you go to church with alone. Extend that to acquaintances that may go to church here, but you don't know very well. They're actually a stranger to you. They're not a friend. Make them a friend. Don't end it there either, though. Continue. Neighbors who don't know Jesus, people who are disconnected from the church, include them in your hospitality. When you do that, you're doing what? Your fellowship is gospel-centered, it's Christ-centered, which then leads to what for you and to others? Spiritual maturity. Keep it simple, but prioritize hospitality. Hey, if you're new to Redeemer and you're like, how do I get involved? And you've been here a few different times. Here's one example I'm going to give you. Invite someone from the church to over to your house or to your apartment or to whatever, wherever you live. If you live in your car, then invite me to your car. Doesn't matter. This is a great way for you to get involved in the church is by actually, hey, I'm new here. I don't know a lot of people. Hey, would you, would you like to get coffee? Can I, can I learn more about the church? Can I learn more about your perspective? Well, that's a great way to get involved. And by, by that, you are understanding gospel fellowship. The, second thing, the, thir- the third thing, or the fourth thing, yeah, fourth thing, lives centered on the church. What does that mean? This is what I mean. The church is not just one part of your life. It's not what you do on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. The church is the, your life is centered on the church. That means when you think about a new job, you ask yourself, you ask yourself the question, how will this affect my relationship to the church? If that particular job doesn't allow me to be involved in the life of the church, you should do what? You should say no to the job offer. And I want to give Josh Strauss up some credit because he, he got offered a job and he said no because he would have to not be here on Sunday morning. That is someone who's making the church the center of their life, not just a part of their life. And when you do that, what you're saying is, is that my spiritual maturity happens in my involvement in the church. And if I were to get rid of my involvement in the church, I would suffer as I grow in spiritual maturity. Here's the last one is church membership. To grow into spiritual maturity, you have to commit to the church. Why? Because this is the setting by which church mem- spiritual maturity happens. And if church membership and committing to the church, you don't have that, you will not grow in spiritual maturity. I will say that, and you can, you can do this. If you want to test me on that, give, uh, give yourself two years, and I bet you money, you'll come back to me and say, yeah, yeah, I'm not as mature as I should be because I'm not a part of the church. There's a privilege about being a member, and if you, don't want, if, you don't, if you don't believe me, tell anyone in this room that's a member of the church. They have deep relationships with one another. Why? Because they're committed to one another. But it started with, I'm committed to Christ, I'm committed to his church, and what is the privilege of being a member is that you have a family that you're committed to as well. And when you realize that and you commit to that, it is, the, it is a part of that process of spiritual maturity. It's learning as we talked about last week, and then also fellowship. The process of spiritual maturity starts with that commitment to the church. So I just want to encourage you with these things. 
Get in discipleship relationships. Be hospitable. Invite one another into your life. Be vulnerable with them. Prioritize it. Base your life in the church and commit to the church through membership. Let's pray.